you're listening to Surviving the Golden Age, the podcast. I am your host, Adam Terstiak Morgan. And on this episode, we have an interview. We love an interview. And it's with Sadie Dupuis, who you probably know as the lead singer-songwriter of Speedy Ortiz. She also has her own solo project as Sad 13. And most recently, she's become a author of a book of poetry called Mouthguard. I feel lucky to have gotten to catch up with Sadie, considering she has been recently on a book tour and uh, touring with Speedy Ortiz for most of the year. On this episode, we talk with her about how busy of a year she's had and if she gets time to really reflect on everything that she's accomplished this year. And I think it turns out to be a really interesting interview, and I hope that you guys all enjoy it. Uh, I know I did. So without further ado, here's my interview with Sadie Dupuis. Hey, Adam. How's it going? Good. How's it going with you? Pretty good. You've been on a lot of tours this year, both with um, Speedy Ortiz and on the book tour. Has this, yeah. has this been, like, the busiest year of your life? No, sadly. <laughs> um, I think that, I mean, it's been pretty busy for a few years. I feel like we have gotten a little bit better about um, spacing things out. Like, in the year following the Major Arcana record, I would say, like, 2014, um, we were out for so much of the year... It would be like three months in a row without really going home um, or without going home for more than a day every like six weeks. So that put us in a bad health state, pretty much all of us, both mental and physical. And we've kind of been smarter about spacing things out. But I think every time a record comes out, we wind up touring pretty hard on it. Um, A, because we like to play and B, because that's the only real source of income you get. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we, we tend to, to work hard and go out, but I'm happy to have a couple weeks off now. Yeah, so um, do you, like, now that you have a few weeks off, do you get to kind of reflect on the year and, like, how crazy it's been? Um, I will say that yesterday I had so much stuff. Yesterday was, like, my first full day at home without having to go back on tour in a couple days in a long time. Um, and I had all the stuff I wanted to do. And I just watched Gossip Girl all day long. I watched, like, almost a whole season of it. And in the meantime, Googling, like, is it okay to do nothing for a whole day? So I feel like when I come home from a long year of touring like that, um, there's always a few days of just, like, being mentally catatonic, which is fine because you wind up, you know, it's like an insane work week to, to be on tour. You don't really, even if it's a day off, it's not really a day off. You're still traveling. Um, your workday starts at like, you know, maybe you're lucky and you get to leave town at like 10 a.m., but often it's earlier than that. Um, and then you're not done till you load out. So you really like pack in a lot of hours and I really value the time to just not use my brain or body at all when I come home. Yeah, definitely. Um, when you, so when you had both, you know, touring with Speedy Ortiz and doing the book tour, is there, like, one that's more nerve-wracking than the other? The 
tour is really was really easy. Um, it's much less of a schedule commitment. Um, often the dates were close enough to home that I could just go home. Um, and I'm not trying to keep track of like six people's worth of equipment and, you know, buy out and pay out for six people and trying to wrangle six people to wake up at, you know, to get up for our call time, um, or to pack up all their stuff at the end of the night. There's just like a lot less, I only have to be worried about myself and like one box of books. Um, and the other thing that was really cool about being on the book tour, which I don't know if I'll do next time, but I decided I was sick of being in a, uh, a car or a van. Um, so I took trains and buses everywhere, which was really nice. I love, I'm like obsessed with the train. So, um, it was just great to get to like, look out the window. It's so beautiful and be reading a book and not have to worry about, um, traffic or weather conditions or whatever else. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, I mean, your book is called Mouth Guard. When, when, or how did you come up with the idea of, like, writing a book of poetry? Well, I studied, I wrote poetry when I was in college, and then I did an MFA program in poetry. Um, and the thesis for that was a manuscript of, of poetry, which is... Um, fairly closely resembles Mouthguard, at least in its content, if not its order and structure. Um, so I worked on that from 2011 to 2014. Um, awesome. Um, in, like, how did the, like, process of, like, publishing it come about? Well, I finished the manuscript somewhere in the middle of, like, when I was, like, the busiest year I had was probably 2014, um, where I was on tour for almost the whole year, but I was also trying to finish up this master's degree, and I flew home from a tour from Europe to defend my thesis, and then, like, flew to meet the rest of my bandmates in D.C., where they'd already started another tour. Um, so I, I had spent three years teaching at a university and taking classes and submitting writing on the deadline for this thesis and also doing speedier teas with all the free time I had away from school uh, and by the end of it I was pretty exhausted of doing both and it seemed like um, the more pressing opportunities were coming in through speedy rather than through the book or through poetry so I kind of I didn't I wasn't intentionally shelving the book I just like couldn't think about it anymore because I'd spent three years working so hard on it and also working on music so hard that I kind of just needed to focus on one um and so the next you know 2014 2015 2016 2017 i was on tour pretty constantly um between speedy and then my my solo project sat 13 and then 2017 i was just back and forth touring between both of them um i would do one tour with sad 13 and then come do speedy and then sad 13 and just like i was like oh my god i've just been on tour since I finished this thesis and haven't thought about it at all. And I, I sort of, um, I wasn't like angry at myself for that, but I resented that I, you know, worked so hard on something I was so proud of and hadn't made any effort to release it into the world. So I, I reached out to one publisher that I really admired. Um, 
and asked if she wanted to do the book and she said yes and if i if i known it was that easy i probably would have um sent out the manuscript years earlier but i was anticipating this long process of like sending out the manuscript waiting months to have it rejected sending it out again and i just didn't have the mental uh energy to to get engaged in that process um i was very lucky that the, the first place i wanted to do the book said yes yeah that's awesome um, Which I know is not the usual experience. I think I got pretty lucky. <laughs> is um, is your process of writing a poem different than your process of writing a song? Yes, because I write um, when I do when I write songs, I write all the music first. Um, so the lyrics are sort of the last thing I'll I'll record and write. Whereas the poetry isn't. I'm not trying to fit it into any kind of melody or rhythm. It's just its own project. When you write songs, do you, so do you think of yourself as like a guitar player first and the lyricist second, or are they like... Kind um, of I guess I think of myself more as a composer rather than just the guitarist, because often the way that I write these songs, I'll make a demo with every instrument track. Um, and live, definitely, I mean, I'm thinking of myself more as the guitarist than the singer. Um, I feel like the fact that I sing the songs and write the lyrics is um, just out of convenience because I already wrote all the music, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm definitely thinking more of my roles as like composer and guitarist than as lyricist and singer. When did you like first start composing your own songs? started writing songs on piano when I was in elementary school um but I didn't start recording them until I was like 13 and when so when did you first start like playing guitar seriously um it 12 like right before I turned 13 I guess I was 12 okay so the first songs you recorded were those on guitar or piano guitar okay but I played I mean my dad um played piano and taught, I mean, I took lessons, not with him, but we would play together and make up songs and, um, he would help me write out like music of them. So although I wasn't recording them, um, you know, to tape, I guess they were still being recorded in some way, or I probably still have like sheets of paper that we worked on together. That was, um, us writing songs on piano. So it had kind of been like a, I've kind of been doing it as long as I can remember anything about my life. Yeah. Um, in the blurb of your book, it mentions that you've become less overtly witchy and way more politically motivated. <laughs> yeah. Um, and is that like, do you think that was an intentional move on your part? Or do you think it was just like a natural evolution? I think it's just getting older. Like I still love, I can never get away from loving haunted things and loving, uh, witchy things and supernatural things but I think at the the time that I was writing this book and at the time that I was working on early speedy stuff I was like 23 years old and um not to say I was like conceited but I think sometimes your problems can seem like the biggest problems in the world um and as you get older you start to realize that your problems matter in the context that you know they're afflicting lots and lots of people and that um 
there's a reason there's systems in place to make sure that you're experiencing those problems you know what i mean mm-hmm. like uh i would love to use witchy metaphors about like romance whereas now i i that's not really um i don't view like romantic interpersonal issues as like the be all and end all of conflict right um yeah I kind of thought about twerp first that it was um, maybe your most personal record. Do you agree with that assessment? Um, I think it's hard to do that as a superlative because they all have felt personal as I was writing them, but they're personal about different things. I would say twerp first is probably the least about my personal life. Um, but every time I write something, it's because I was moved to work through the feelings that, um, you know, were, were blocking me. So um, I would say on, on that record, it's more big picture stuff unless my, you know, it's not about my personal life in any real sense. Um, or if it is, it's about how I wish the people in my personal life could be um, better allies to the rest of my friends if that makes sense mm-hmm. um so I mean twerp verse so far for me is probably my favorite of your records yay thank you <laughs> no problem and actually it's gonna definitely be one on my favorites of the year um oh. and I'm just wondering like do you read reviews of your music or do you try to not engage in the oh yeah critical? I read them I read everything <laughs> Um, does it, do you like take them very personally or is it just because you're interested to hear what other people think or evaluate? No, I don't take it personally. And especially prior to going for my MFA, I I was a music critic, uh, and I always enjoyed reading reviews, positive and negative of things that I liked or disliked. Um, so I am reading them more from a curiosity point, like what are people hearing in this? beyond what I intentionally put there. Um, so I wouldn't say, I, I don't take things personally unless they're like overtly sexist, which happens all the time, or unless there's just like bizarre fact-checking stuff where I'm like, why do they think that there's auto-tune here? <laughs> like when there just blatantly isn't. Um, so sometimes I read stuff like that and I'm like, hmm, interesting lack of editing. But um yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy reading a, a negative and a positive review about equally. I didn't know that about you, that you did music uh, critique. Um, I had, let's see, I mean, I wrote for a bunch of different places. I wrote for Spin and Nylon, um, New York Magazine. I had I had worked in my, uh, when I was an undergrad, I was the arts editor of MIT's paper. Mm-hmm. And then um, I just kind of freelanced um through college and a little bit beyond that. Well, that's awesome. And when you um, when you say that, um, like reading your reading some of the interviews that you've done, um, it seems like you get asked all the time about being uh, you know a woman in the music industry kind of thing. Um, when you like are reading reviews, um, do you find that everyone tries to? like focus more on you being a woman writing these songs rather than like a songwriter. And does that bother you? Um, it really depends on the writer. And like I said, I mean, I think there are 
you know, there are extensions of my gender that have informed how I get to function in the world, and that certainly um, your worldview is your songwriting. Um, so sometimes it's applicable, and then sometimes I'm like, you know, as I just said, reviews don't tend to bother me unless they're overtly sexist, which sometimes happens because um, people will make assumptions about your role in your own work based on gender. Um, so that kind of stuff tends to frustrate me. But I think, you know, like anything, there are um, smart and stupid ways of writing about gender um, for a musician. And while it's frustrating that people only tend to ever think about that for people who aren't cis men, um, that means sometimes it's right to, to focus on those areas. So I'm not like peeved. I'm not peeved unless it's done stupidly. <laughs> Um, I know that, uh, earlier this year, you played Fenway Park with Dinosaur Jr. and Foo Fighters. Yeah. Like, how, when you get that phone call that you are being asked to do something like that, like, what is your immediate reaction to it? Um, well, usually it's like an email with like 20 people CC'd. And then we all have to decide whether we're even interested in being put forward for the gig. So it's like, it's like so much back and forth before it ever even gets confirmed that it's not like out of the blue, like someone's like, hey, suddenly you have this date. Um, it starts with like the, this date exists and they're wondering if you're even interested and how much money would it take for you to want to do it. Um, so there's enough like back and forth that if you don't wind up getting the gig, you're not like disappointed but also if you do wind up getting it it's not like shocking if that makes sense um but it's always super exciting when an offer comes in and it's someone that um you know it's musicians you admire and want to play with and especially at a, a venue that's not obviously the day-to-day -day experience of speedy ortiz is not doing baseball stadiums um so I think when that offer came in, we were sort of like, haha, that'd be funny if we get this. Like, wouldn't it be fun? And then when it happens, you know, a few weeks later, you're like, great, this is going to be awesome. Um, and I think a lot of doing music full time is sort of tempering your expectations so that even when, you know, a good offer has come up and it seems likely that you're going to get it, um, you never want to psych yourself up so hard that you're disappointed if it falls through for whatever reason. Um, so I feel like we try to, I don't know. We try to be really realistic about stuff, even when it looks likely. So did you live in Massachusetts long enough that, like, playing Fenway Park was, like, a really, like, big deal for you? Um, I mean, I'm not such a baseball fan that it's, like, crazy to me, but, um, I mean, I lived there for seven years, so it was cool, um, to be able to do a big venue like that where I still have so many friends in town who were able to come see us play a stadium and they were all it's the most I've ever been texted photos of myself while playing from my friends because they were all taking pictures of us on the jumbotron with like an lol attached to it um so that was really funny but also like I mean I run a a, a, a label that's an imprint of car park which is our label um called wax nine and our only band is milk belly and they got to do the Foo Fighters show at Wrigley and I feel like it's a, a similar experience um just like so funny and awesome that bands like us who come from this DIY background are 
suddenly doing a stadium, it's um, it's not the kind of thing you expect to get, but it's really cool that Foo Fighters thought to, to bring us out. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, was that your... I mean, I'm assuming it's your first time playing with Foo Fighters. Um, yeah. Was it your first time playing with Dinosaur Jr. as well, or have you played with them before? Um, we've done festivals with Dino, and Speedy's played with Jay solo. Um, and we know them all because of just living in Western Mass. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of fun. We got to share the, the way that they do the green rooms at Fenway when you're playing is that um, the headliner gets like the Red Sox dugout, and then the support gets the visiting team locker room. So it was, like, us and Dino and, like, all of their kids in the visiting team locker room, like, watching Star Wars. Um, so that was that was cute. That's awesome. Um, yeah. You know, Western Massachusetts, me growing up in Connecticut, I, you know, went up to Northampton quite a bit. Yeah, where in Connecticut are you from? I saw your area code. Oh, yeah. I'm from, uh, I'm from New Britain originally. Okay. Um, you said that very Connecticut, too. Yeah. <laughs> New Britain. New Britain. <laughs> yeah. you, you never lose the accent, really. Um, but yeah, so uh, like driving up to Northampton, I don't think that it's quite like obvious why so many great bands would come from there. But yeah, it, you know. Uh, but obviously, it's it is a hotbed for really great music over the past. Um, what are we talking like 30 40 years at this point mm-hmm. and i'm just wondering like what why do you think it has been that way um i mean i feel like it's the same reason that like austin in the middle of texas is like a cultural hub um all of the like cool colleges in that part of massachusetts are kind of congregated right in that little area um so you wind up with a lot of students who want to see and appreciate art, whether that's music or poetry or whatever else. Um, and then you wind up with the, the budgets to bring in musicians, which certainly inspires students to start their own projects. I really feel like the, um, the academic nature of that area has a, a big thing to do with it because there's such a, I don't know, there's such a, a residential turnover since so much of the population is based on the, um, that academic calendar mm-hmm. um so you wind up with a lot of new bands all the time and um a lot of people who want to go go see music and support local music so i feel like that's the biggest factor in my opinion and certainly was like the reason i wound up there because i mean i obviously knew about western mass just from being a, a fan of um you know dinosaur jr and and sonic youth and pixies um but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have just moved there if not for going to graduate school, you know? Right. And then I guess my last question is, um, like, how good of a holiday gift does a book of poetry make? I think it's a great gift. <laughs> and a lot of my friends have been telling me that they are just buying up, like, multiple copies of my book to give to everyone for Christmas, <laughs> which um, means that I have some really good friends. But... Um, as, as someone who enjoys giving Christmas gifts, I feel like a, Chris, a poetry book is often my go-to because um, it's kind of a fun way of showing that, like, there's so many options to choose from. It's not a big commitment for the person you bought it for. You're not giving them, like, a, you know, 800-page Jonathan Franzen 
quest to slog through. Um, <laughs> and yeah, there's there's a lot of range of what you can give in a, a poetry book. It's it's like giving an album. It's like a low commitment, fun gift that can show how well you know the person. So I love gifting poetry. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I hope... Plus, you get to support people in a field that pays almost no money, um, <laughs> just like music. That's awesome. And I hope uh, I hope my readers will uh, take your advice, then. Buy your book. It's selling extremely well, which I just found out a couple days ago. It was the third bestseller of the month for um, small press distribution. And it's almost... it's it, They've sold, like... It was a printing of a thousand, and it, it's at like six hundred or seven hundred copies sold, um, and it's only been out a month, so that's pretty cool. Wow! Yeah, that's amazing. Well, yeah, I was like, I thought I thought I'd be holding on to these thousand copies for years. <laughs> well, congratulations. Thank you. And thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in to another episode of Surviving the Golden Age podcast. We will be back in the new year with uh, hopefully a lot of new episodes. I know we took a little bit of a break since our last one, but we got a lot of content coming and uh, that's very exciting. So uh, stay subscribed if you haven't subscribed yet. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. And you can always find us at survivingthegoldenage.com. Until next time.